November 13th, 2023 marked the one-year anniversary of the ending of four Idaho students' lives who were brutally murdered in a home in Moscow, Idaho, after a fun night out. Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Xander Kernodal, and Ethan Chapin are remembered as bright young people whose lives were stolen from them by a deeply disturbed and ruthless individual. Brian Koberger has been the prime suspect in the case and awaiting his trial. It was supposed to be in October of 2023, but he waived his right to a speedy trial and we are now waiting on a definitive date. Now, although Brian Koberger was a student in criminology and working on his PhD, we can't deny there seems to be several mistakes before, on, and after the night of the twisted horrific murder? Or was it all a grand master plan and meant to look that way? There has been controversy all year over whether Brian is responsible or not. Today we'll explore the top 10 seeds that Brian Koberger, if guilty, appeared to plant in an attempt to influence the future jury and create reasonable doubt if apprehended. I'm Linda with It's a Crime, so now let's get into it. As we look back at the facts of the case, there are some very interesting patterns and, well, as I always say, people have patterns. In every move, it seemed purposeful, calculated, almost as if he wanted to look like there were mistakes. A deliberate plan to take the attention away from him, a diversion. After all, a criminology student wouldn't make these mistakes, right? Or would he? Now, Brian Koberger is a guy who was working on his PhD in criminology, and he sounded like a guy who should have it all figured out, right? But there's this twist to this entire picture, and it's definitely not that simple. Here's how Brian planted seeds of doubt for the future jury. Number one, he surveyed criminals five months before the murder. Was it a guise or is it legit? In the months leading up to the gruesome killings, Brian decided to dive headfirst into the minds of criminals, survey and all. The survey was quite detailed and it seemed like he was on a mission to figure out what goes on in the twisted minds of those who chose a dark path. And one could argue that it was just a research project, as he called it, but research for what? Was this innocent or was it more? Brian was digging deep into the nitty gritty. The questionnaire delved into details such as victim selection, pre-crime pe preparation, and the emotions criminals experienced before, during, and after committing offenses. Nothing was off limits. Some of the questions did include, why did you choose that victim or target over others? Before making your move, how did you approach the victim or target? Please detail what you were thinking and feeling. Also, he asked, did you commit the crime alone? Yes or no? And if not, how many people were involved? And after arriving, what steps did you take prior to locating the victim or target? Please detail your thoughts and feelings. Then goes on to ask, before leaving, is there anything else you did? I did a more detailed video on the poll that you can check out in the description box below. And it's interesting, isn't it? Asking about the methods of approaching a target, pulling crimes off solo, and the aftermath of leaving a crime scene. It was as if he was leaving no stone unturned in his crime-ridden questions for his research project. Would you agree or disagree? Let me know in the comments below. Now, one could say, ah, it was just for his research and it's nothing, but if he was planting seeds, 
One could say it would be a great way to find out how he could get away with a crime and info gather. This would potentially sway a jury, leaving reasonable doubt because the survey is just part of his schooling and it's a coincidence and you know I don't believe in that. If this was for nefarious reasons, which very well could be, did he decide based on that survey that he was able to do this alone or did he have help? Did it give him confidence? Was this part of his pre-plan? Number two, there were blatant and bizarre behavioral shifts. Were they natural or contrived? Brian's former classmates noticed something straight up bizarre in his behavior from before the murders to after. One minute he's the poster child for perpetual exhaustion before the killings and the next he's upbeat and Mr. Chatty Cathy after as the semester progressed. A classmate said, he seemed more upbeat and willing to carry on a conversation, but they also said he would become quiet and deadpan when the class discussed the case. But that's not all in sudden behavior differences. He was a teacher's assistant, and there were changes even how he graded the students. His grading suddenly turned into a give everyone a gold star party, whereas before he was known to be hard on the other students. According to one of the students, they said pretty much if you turn something in, you're gonna get a high mark. They also said he stopped leaving notes and seemed preoccupied. Do you think Brian was on a natural high after these murders or was it deliberate or was it something else unrelated? And what about a chat with his neighbor? It's not your typical block party small talk, but nothing is typical in this case. The neighbor said, this about the murders. He brought it up in conversation. He asked if I had heard about the murders, which I did. And then he said, yeah, seems like they have no leads. Seems like it was a crime of passion. This unsettling conversation definitely raised some eyebrows. Another oddity in behavior is gloves made a surprise appearance in his everyday life. For example, in one instance, while under surveillance, he went to a grocery store, but not without channeling his inner secret agent. It's like he was auditioning for a role in a spy movie right there in the cereal aisle. Gloves on, cruising through the store, you can't help but wonder, is he trying to avoid leaving any trace behind? Maybe he's on a mission to outsmart the surveillance cameras, or he's just really germaphobic. It's weird, unless, of course, he had a purpose to not leave a fingerprint anywhere for fear of linking up to a crime. Although it's pretty blatant behavior, you know, did he want to be seen with these gloves and to mess with those investigating? playing cat and mouse kind of thing. Brian was already known to have odd behavior and OCD, so was he just like that? Did he wear gloves before? Was there more to this? Number three, he left a knife sheath behind, but the murder weapon is still missing. Left there on the bed where Kaylee and Maddie's lives took a dark turn laid a knife sheath partially under Maddie's body, but no sign of the murder weapon. The sheath was embossed with letters USMC and with the Marine Corps insignia. In one of my videos, or previous videos, I talked about who could be the target and talked about feeling like it was Maddie who was the target. And more and more we are finding out clues that lead to pointing to Maddie, but we really don't know yet. So was the sheath 
left intentionally, a sinister move in some gruesome game, or was it a slip up, an oversight in the chaos and heightened emotions in the aftermath of this horrific crime? John Kelly, who is a criminal profiler and psychotherapist, thinks he may be leaving that knife sheath to play mind games. He says, this is staging 101. They're going to look at this and they're going to think it's a military guy that did this. Some guy with some kind of training who lives up the road. He also says, if you took a pistol out of your holster, wouldn't you put it back in? I don't know anybody who wouldn't. And if I went fishing and had to take my knife out, I would put it back in the sheath. Brian is also known to be vegan and is described as obsessive compulsive. John said, you're such a clean vegan who's obsessive compulsive about what you eat and everything else. Just the hygiene of carrying a bloody knife around, wearing it somewhere on your person as you get out of the house. His theory is that perhaps he left it behind on purpose, but not without wiping it down first. However, John Kelly's not giving Brian too much credit, calling him out as no genius and suggesting that his whole plan might have been to set him up for getting caught. Now, in a minute, I'll get into some comments that coincide with talking about the sheath and possibly backing up that he left it there purposely. Would this be his signature or calling card as it's called in criminology? In criminology, a calling card is a particular object sometimes left behind by a criminal at a scene of a crime often as a way of taunting police or claiming responsibility. As for the missing murder weapon, while authorities are searching for a K-Bar military knife, they were also searching Brian's online activities and purchases. Prosecutors served search warrants for customer accounts at Amazon, eBay, Apple, and PayPal. And from Amazon, they demanded all detailed customer click activity pertaining to knives and accessories. They were looking for specific dates from March 20th to March 30th, 2022, which is eight months before the murders took place, and November 1st to December 6th. On eBay, they sought out information as well about 13 specific eBay users. Two of those users were listed as living in Washington, one in Idaho, and one in Pennsylvania. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we know that Brian came from Pennsylvania, attended Washington State University, and is 10 miles from the victim's house in Idaho. I cannot wait to see what they have found in regards to that, can you? As for that missing murder weapon, Brian took a little road trip after the murders and he turned off his phone for a three hour span. Immediately, I am thinking a weapon disposal. What do you think? Now, one of the treks was from digital data. Brian returned to the scene of the crime just hours after the murder. But on Monday the 14th at 12.36 p.m., he was in Clarkston, Washington. Then the next day on November 14th, it's a Monday. You got to wonder, shouldn't he be in class at the time or did he just have class in the morning? But at 12.36 p.m., Brian's phone pinged in Clarkston, as I mentioned. Then he goes to Johnson, Idaho, two hours east. And it's one and a half hours away from Clarkston and two hours from Pullman. Then a few hours after that, from 5.36 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., his phone is turned off. Now, in a previous video, I said that I'd be scouring that area for three hours and looking for a murder weapon and any other articles of clothing or burn sites. And I mean, it's quite possible that could be where he disposed of it, allegedly. What do you think? 
one of the interesting things I noticed too is the times he shuts off his phone and turns it off and back on, it seems almost to be like on the exact hour within a couple minutes. That's interesting too. Perhaps that's his OCD or it coincides with a certain plan. I don't know. Now, police went through Brian Koberger's family home with a search warrant digging up face masks and not just any face masks, but black ones. And that was the description of what the suspect wore the night of the killings and seen by one of the surviving roommates. They also found a 40 caliber Glock 22 pistol, which is a favorite among law enforcement and a pocket knife, a laptop, black gloves, a green leafy substance, and in Brian's car, they found gloves, boots, a shovel, and a pair of goggles. Number four, DNA was left behind at the scene of the crime. And this one is so fascinating in so many ways. Brian left a little something behind at the crime scene. His DNA was said to be found on the knife sheath on the button. And when Brian was arrested, they did a buckle swab, AKA cheek swab, and turns out it was a statistical match. And the odds of it being Brian's DNA are 5.37 octillion times more likely than if it was some random person from the street. And octillion is obviously a huge number, one followed by 27 zeros. Not only did they have DNA directly from Brian, but before his arrest, authorities were able to collect DNA from the trash at Brian's parents' house. And guess whose DNA they found? Brian's dad, who would obviously be related to Brian, and Brian's DNA matched with the sheath. And they're saying it's all flawed science and brought in a DNA expert, Dr. Leah Larkin. In her affidavit, the doctor makes a case that the DNA profiles whipped up by at-home testing kits from places like 23andMe and Ancestry DNA aren't quite on par with the ones crafted in specialized labs, raising doubts about their reliability. The document underscores that a shoddy kit could leave you with too few matches or even some mysterious matches that don't actually signify a family connection. She highlights the platforms such as Ancestry, 23andMe, and MyHeritage, and she says that they have an explicit ban to use uh, their databases for forensic or investigative genealogy. Still, she notes that there's not much of a watchdog around those, you know, around to enforce these re restrictions on there. Now, I've done several tests personally and used some of the different companies. I'm not saying that it's untrue what she's saying at all because she's an expert, but I will say the way they word it is interesting because phantom matches typically is when it is a very distant connection. So it'll say like you have eight centimorgans, which is a teeny tiny amount of DNA shared, but it goes up to generations and generations and it could be a nothing burger. Brian's DNA matching with his dad or on the button of the sheath would not be phantom. It'd be a high amount of DNA um, match. In the absence of effective oversight, forensic genetic genealogists are an honor system to obey the terms of service and the Department of Justice interim policy on forensic genetic genealogy. She then goes on to say she's aware of where genetic genealogy has been wrong as well as cases where the databases were used improperly by the authorities. The defense is also claiming that the DNA could have been planted there by investigators. They're waving around two other male DNA samples as well found in the house like it's a bingo game and a DNA sample that was found on a glove outside the property a week after the murders. But here's the kicker. None of those samples were cozying up to the murder weapon sheath. 
Side note, the prosecution has until December 1st to submit all DNA evidence to the defense. Number five, he carried his phone with him and turned his cell phone off and his car was spotted on cam. Brazen or stupid? Brian carried his phone with him. This is, you know, well, in my opinion, a stupid move, wouldn't you agree? But why? He knew and knows better, so why is that? His phone activity pinged near the murder house on multiple occasions and spanning a period of time. There's even data that shows Brian going back to the scene of the crime, as I mentioned, just hours after the murder. On August 21st, 2022, which is three months before the murders and right after Brian moved, Brian's phone was picked up by a cell phone tower providing coverage to the murder house, 1122 King Road, Moscow, Idaho. Brian's phone was picked up by a cell phone tower near the property at least 11 more times before the murders on November 13th. And on November 13th, 2022 at 2.42 a.m., Brian's phone was near his home in Pullman, Washington. At 2.47 a.m., his phone pinged again, traveling south, and the phone stopped pinging. It was either put in airplane mode, turned off, or dropped off the network. At 3.26 a.m., Brian's vehicle, his Hyundai Elantra, was captured on CCTV cruising the streets of Indian Hills Drive in Moscow, Idaho. It departed two minutes later. The car then heads to the student's home, and it said during this 3.30 mark, the vehicle was observed circling the home three times within 30 minutes before leaving via Walenta Drive, offering a clear view into the back of the victim's property. From 4 o'clock to 4.20 a.m., Maddie, Kaylee, Zana, and Ethan were all knife to death. At 4.48 a.m., Brian's phone pings the network again on Idaho State Highway 95, south of Moscow. Now, if we back up at the 4 a.m. mark, took place that window. At 4 a.m., Zana receives a DoorDash delivery at 4. And around 4.04, Brian reportedly makes a fourth pass, executing a three-point turn at the adjacent apartment complex. At 4.20, the suspect's vehicle is said to speed away from the King Road location, exiting the neighborhood through Walenta Drive. So we have that 20-minute, 15-minute period. At 4.50 a.m. to 5.26 a.m., his phone pings show traveling on Idaho 95 to Genesee, Idaho, and then the two west towards Uniontown, Idaho, and back north into Pullman, Washington, and it was a weird jaunt. Now at 5.25 a.m., Brian's car reappears on Johnson Road, linking the back roads below Moscow to Pullman. Subsequently, he's allegedly captured on five cameras at Washington State University heading back to his apartment. At 5.30, Brian's phone pings again back home. And three and a half hours later at 9 a.m., that's when his phone is on the move again and travels back to the area of the crime scene. It is picked up by a nearby cell phone tower between 9.12 and 9.21. Ten minutes later at 9.32, Brian's phone indicates that he's arrived back home in Pullman, which again is only a 10-minute drive anyways. But the defense said Brian just likes to go for drives and, you know, was known to. Number six, he disposed of things in Ziploc bags. When authorities served a search warrant and nabbed Brian at his parents' house on December 30th, 2022 at 1.30 a.m. and arrested him, he was caught separating his trash from the family's kitchen garbage complete with latex gloves on. Not only did he do that, he carefully sealed the garbage in Ziploc baggies. He was also seen disposing of things in the neighbor's trash as well. So why did he do this at 
his parents' house or the neighbors. Why in Ziploc bags? He'd preserve evidence, right? Is it deliberate? Is it blatant? Is this brilliant? Why didn't he dispose of things um, maybe on his three-hour little trek? Comment below. Let me know what you think. So the search warrant was fruitful. Authorities discovered four medical style gloves along with a bunch of items, including a t-shirt, a sweatshirt, shorts, and a pair of hefty size 13 Nike sneakers. Now at the crime scene, they did find a latent shoe print and I'm so curious if it was Brian, if he was the killer, did he wear size 13 shoe? Or did he wear a different size? I'd love to know that piece. Now in the probable cause affidavit, it talked about the latent shoe print and it said it had a diamond shaped sole pattern resembling that of a van sneaker. What do you think about the shoes? It seems to be a lot of diversions. I'm wondering, you know, is he doing this purposeful or not? The Monroe County First Assistant District Attorney, Michael Mancuso, reportedly said that Mr. Koberger was found awake in the kitchen area, dressed in shorts and a shirt, wearing latex medical type gloves, and apparently was taking his personal trash and putting it into separate Ziploc baggies. The district attorney said that Brian's actions of Ziplocking the trash could explain why just days before they weren't able to get DNA of Brian and only his family. He also said it could very well explain some of the other aspects of the case from Idaho, some of the lengths that a person would go to to avoid having their DNA left behind when they know or should have known that there was an investigation underway. And remember, he was actually pulled on the side of the road with his dad traveling from Washington to Pennsylvania. So maybe that gave him a trigger to do this. This also circles back to the gloves, doesn't it? Number seven, there were planted theories and psychological games. We now enter characters like Papa Rogers, an online persona who seemed to stir the pot with speculations on crime details and potential motives. His post started November 30th, which is two weeks after the murders. Now, some of the comments that were made is, of the evidence released, the murder weapon has been consistent as a large fixed blade knife. This leads me to believe that they found the sheath. This evidence was released prior to autopsies. Now, the sheath was found, but this wasn't made public until after Brian's arrest. He says, I believe the killer or killers came from the high side of the house. They were covered in blood after the attack. Now, this would be true as the killer left from the sliding back door at the back of the house. Next, did the killer or killers drive or walk to and from the scene? Thoughts? And there were multiple posts about the layout of the house and where the bodies were found. He also said, did the killer stop at four victims of, out of exhaustion, convenience, or lack of knowledge? Now, this makes me feel like he knew that there were two others in the house and spared the other two potentially. And the author seems to play a game of opposites. They said, I feel like the white car isn't relevant. We know that's not true. And it's also the white car is a red herring. Also, the killer is not a student and says the killer is not in the victim's immediate circle. Any known internet suspect has been eliminated at this point. Fight me. He taunts saying one knife and four people. The killer took a big risk. The knife could have easily broken off or become ineffective after one or two murders. Are we sure there is only one knife involved? A knife is very risky weapon. If you know you are going to murder four people, do we think the killer also had another weapon such as a stun gun or other knife or did they not know what they would encounter? 
Next, is the killer still in Moscow, Idaho right now? He'd be in Pennsylvania at the time. And also he says, in your opinion, did the killer shower at the crime scene afterwards? Why did the killer choose the house over all the others in the area? The date of the killing was chosen on purpose, which is interesting to me. I'd like to deep dive on that. And he said, why was a knife the weapon of choice? And next, I know this won't be popular, but this is where I think the victims were found and shows a diagram um, of the house layout and where he thinks the victims were. I did do a Papa Roger video exploring the theory and my own theory in it. If it was Brian acting as Papa Roger and I even theorized why he would have chosen or why he chose that name and broke that down. Check it out right here or at the end of the video or the description box below. Was Brian trying to gain more answers and theories just like his little survey? What do you think? I'd love to hear below. Now there's also a user a Reddit user called Inside Looking and they posted several speculative posts as well with full details of the murders while police remained tight-lipped about it at the time. They said things like the killer parked behind the house, approaching property through tree line, entered sliding door and left it open, um, committed murders and exited sliding door, one knife according to coroner's statement, and time of murder approximately between 3.20 and 3.40 a.m. according to car fleeing scene and on camera on Highway 8 at approximately 3.45 a.m. The vehicle left skid marks upon exit. They also accurately pointed out that the pictures of a shoe print police were investigating belonged to the suspect. And the user also insisted that the white Hyundai Elantra would be the key to cracking the case, predicting that it would lead the police to a suspect. Now there's another post that is very disturbing and that was posted on Monday, December 12th. And whoever posted this message knew that the suspect was in Pennsylvania. The last part said, I'm hiding in the woods in old Pennsylvania. Good luck catching me. Now, how would that person know? Right? The gruesome part that I don't want to repeat and I will not repeat verbatim was something to do with the student's intestines and a place they put the knife, especially to Kaylee. And so I do not want to read it. But there's no indication at this point anyway that this is true. We'll find out more obviously at trial. Now there was a possible theory Brian himself pushed when he got arrested. He asked if anyone else was arrested pushing a potential theory. Now, number eight, he switched license plates after the murders. On December 7th, the police announced they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra that was in the immediate vicinity of the victim's house in the night of the murders. The authorities said that they had 22,000 registered Elantras and urged for the public's help in identifying anyone owning a car of this make and model. On November 18th, just days after the murder, Brian changed his license plate from Pennsylvania plates to Washington, the state he currently lived in. And in one of my previous videos, I talked about how, according to Washington laws, Brian legally had 30 days to transfer his license plate or face a $529 fine. He moved at some point in the summer before classes started in August of 2022, and he was pulled over on August 21st in the area of King Road, and he was also pulled over in October. So I wondered if he was warned in any way about these plates. Why would Brian wait until after the murders to switch these plates? Just thinking out loud here, he could have changed the plates before, but still keep the old ones and then do the switcheroo. So it's interesting that he waited, in my opinion, what do you think? 
Also notable, word spread like wildfire about these murders, and it's a small town or these little t two small adjacent towns, and they were looking for a white Hyundai Elantra. But notable, Brian didn't come forward that he owned one. But the officers did say in the beginning they were looking for a 2011 to 2013, and Brian drove a 2015. So perhaps an easy argument and a point for Brian. Number nine, he kept pictures of one of the victims on his phone and contacted them. Brian allegedly had more than one picture of one of the victims on his phone, and a confidential source was saying that he was definitely giving that one victim some special attention. Brian also messaged one of the girls in late October and sent direct messages after she allegedly ignored him. The message was said to be more of a hi, how are you, but he repeated the message again and again. So I wonder if she did reply what that next message or messages would have been. The family of Kaylee believes that they have digital evidence showing a tie between Brian and two of the victims. They handed over screenshots of an Instagram account they think belonged to Brian. And the evidence suggests he was following both Kaylee and Maddie, even actively liking photos on Maddie's account. And the twist after Brian was arrested, poof, the account went silent. But here's the kicker. It's still a bit hazy whether they actually confirmed if it was Brian's account or not. Of course, Brian's defense is swearing that there's zero link between him and the victims. Not surprising. Number 10, he provided a supposed alibi that will exonerate him. Brian in his defense threw down the alibi card swearing he was nowhere near the crime when this horrific murders took place, which is interesting to think about how they're going to argue the details of the phone and the vehicle, but no surprise in court, they have been playing keep away with the details teasing the prosecution with a you'll see it when you get it kind of attitude. And the prosecutors, not thrilled with this obviously, went to the judge begging for the particulars. And the defense, still holding their cards close, said Brian's into these solo midnight drives and pulling a you know vague but maybe alibi on the table. The defense stated, Mr. Koberger has a long habit of going for drives alone. Often he would go for drives at night. He did so late on November 12th and into November 13th, 2022. Mr. Kohlberger is not claiming to be at a specific location at a specific time. Well, I guess not. The prosecution said it was too wishy-washy and calling it vague. They said the state's position at this point is we will accept what the defendant has said that he was driving around. We are willing to accept that with an order from this court from prohibiting the defense from offering third-party evidence, whether by direct or cross-examination, in support of the defendant's claiming alibi. But the judge had a say. Brian's got to cough up some real witnesses for his alibi. The defense responded saying, at this time, there is not a specific witness to say precisely where Kohlberger was the night of the murders. Well, it's not sounding too great, is it, for Brian? Brian's vague alibi revolving around his little nocturnal drives raises skepticism, prompting legal battles over the credibility of his claims, all the while the defense struggles to provide concrete evidence of his whereabouts. Now, apparently, Brian's parents have not visited him in jail or attended court appearances, but according to reports, they have been in contact through phone calls. I would love to be a fly on the wall as to how those calls would go. 
Now, there was a vigil marking the one-year anniversary and was held at the University of Idaho. There are now scholarships in memory of the victims. Zana Kernodal Scholarship Endowment, Ethan Chapin Memorial, which his brother Hunter received this year, Vandals Supporting Vandals Fund, also divided funds among need-based scholarships for Zana, Ethan, and Madison. And the university is currently working with a Gonsalves family to establish a scholarship in Kaylee's name. They also made a memorial healing garden and it was created for quiet reflection and remembrance and honor for all. Ethan's mom penned a book as well called The Boy Who Wore Blue, sharing the family's story. And the Chapins initiated the Ethan's Smile Foundation, funding scholarships from a GoFundMe. Also, Tulip Valley Farms honored Ethan with Ethan's Smile Tulips. Olivia Gonzalez named her daughter after her late sister Kaylee. And the Gonzalez family celebrates Kaylee Jade Day on June 8th. Maddie May Day on May 25th honors Maddie's birthday, encouraging acts of kindness in her memory. And GoFundMe pages have been set up for the families of Zana, Ethan, Kaylee, and Maddie. And there's a joint page for Maddie and Kaylee. If I missed anything, please let me know below. When we put these pieces together, and remember it's the ones we only know about, it's starting to look like Brian perhaps made these moves intentional and part of his master plan. I mean, he really would know better. By doing these moves, does he think this will help him get away with murder? That's the loaded question. Planting doubt along the way. What do you think is the weirdest thing he's done so far that you have heard of? Let me know below, I'm curious. And what would you like me to dive more into on this case? I know you love deep dives, what would it be? Check out my theory on Papa Roger right here, and you can check out the other videos on the case right here. Don't forget to subscribe, like, and share. Thank you so much for watching. We'll see you in the next video.